0: Come on in, grab a seat. Grateful to have you with us this morning. Thank you so much for taking some time out of your weekend to join us. Uh, My name is Thomas, the lead minister here. We have our amazing associate minister, Mr. Tristan Franzoy, with us on the stage. Um, We're going to shake things up a little bit today, do a little tag team preaching for you. Uh, As Jackson said, we thought if one sermon is good on a Sunday morning, then two would be even better, right? So hopefully you have nothing to do for the next four hours. We've got a lot to get into here Who's got football games to go watch? No, no, none of us. Uh, No, we are excited to be talking about two different words in our Simply 7 sermon series. And so we thought that two voices might be helpful uh, to help share and and, and help you understand those different words. So uh, we are in a little sermon series right now called Simply 7. If you are new to University Church this morning, thank you so much for being here. It's great to have you. Uh, We've been talking about keeping things simple. That's really what this entire sermon series is about. A lot of things in life can get overly complicated, can they not? Just walk down the toothpaste aisle, like, what do I even choose right now? Or you could talk about healthcare options, investment opportunities. Most things in life become rather complex, and many of us feel overwhelmed by those things, maybe even in over our head. And what can happen in most things in life can actually happen in our understanding of the author of life. Mm. Our faith can become complex, and a message that's designed to be simple and life-giving can actually be kind of crushing and complex, push people away from God. And so we're keeping things simple. Seven words that we believe describe the entire biblical worldview in its entirety. Seven is actually a number in Hebrew culture that describes uh, completion and wholeness. And so we've chosen seven words that we think say it all. Seven words that we think will help you to understand the Christian faith, but seven words that we hope will help you live out the Christian faith. And then seven words that we hope will empower you to share the Christian faith. So if you are new to the faith, this is the perfect message to be in. As we're trying to, to keep it super simple and tell you what was Jesus all about? What's the Bible all about? What is this Christian thing? So again, we're so, so glad that you're here. And I'm excited to, uh, to be tag teaming. So I'm going to tag my partner in. Tag. It's kind of awkward. Sorry. <laughs> I know you just tagged me yeah, in like we're a wrestling team. <laughs> They call me
1: Hulk. Uh, no, they don't. No, they don't. You're lucky I'm Hulk up here Hogan. to help you with your transitions you and are, stuff. You man. are right. Have you guys ever had a moment in your life where things just went from bad to worse? No one. No, <laughs> not one person. Two. Okay, a couple. If not, there's a good chance that today will be the day because this tag team stuff might be terrible. <laughs> I have no idea how this is going to go. One sermon is
0: bad, too. or is it worse yeah, yeah.
1: yeah, I think you're right on that. Well, for me, it's a, it's a time whenever my wife and I bought our first house. It was an old 1960s brick house, and with a lot of that 1960s charm and character came a lot of that 1960s ugly, if you know what I mean. Mm. If you are born in the 60s, I'm sure you're a great person, but pink walls and shag carpet is just not a good look in any era, mm. all right? So no construction background whatsoever, I set out to remodel my house. And I remember I had just finished putting can lights in our living room, and I'm all proud of myself walking to the light switch, flip it on, and nothing, no light. Like, okay, back in the attic, check all my connections, go back down, flip the switch, nothing. And so, like, I'm new to this. I don't really know how to troubleshoot things. And so I, I, I just start doing whatever I can think of. And before I know it, I, there's several holes in the wall I've ripped out all of my connections and all of the lights. Like, I think at one point I even just started just like hitting the light switch with my hammer, (laughs) just hoping that like something would jiggle or loosen in there and turn on. And so at the end of all of that, I take a step back and I'm like looking at this train wreck of a room and just decide like enough's enough. Like, I'm throwing in the towel and I turn to walk out of the room and I see the panel door to my electrical box is open. And I realized exactly what the issue was. (laughs) See, before the project started, I turned the power off and never turned it back on. That was it. I destroyed the entire room for nothing because of that.
0: How did you ever land this job? That's the question I have for you. Uh,
1: My looks. That was it. (laughs) Definitely isn't the salary, I'll tell you that. I'm joking. That was too far. That was too far. Come on now. In that moment of that little DIY fail remodel, I had never resonated with the words of Humphrey Bogart more whenever he said, things are never so bad that they can't get worse, right? Now, I feel pretty bad about that, but an example that's even worse than that DIY fail comes from the book of Genesis. As Thomas laid out a few weeks ago, the first of our seven words was creator or creation, and we started there because according to the Bible, that's where everything else in all of existence got its start. Everything that exists, from particles to pets to people to mountain peaks, is not here because of some giant cosmic accident, it's here because God wanted it to be here. He purposefully made it all. An unimaginably powerful, inventive, good, and influential father painted the beautiful canvas at his creation, but as Thomas talked about last week, because of our sin, because of our short-sightedness, our selfishness, our tendency to side with the serpent we've just wrecked what was once beautiful. It contaminates and brings about horrific consequences, our sin does, and all of which can be summed up in our second word, which was curse. And Thomas illustrated this idea last week by painting a mediocre painting oh, that he spent weeks whoa. on, by the way, and then proceeded no to No great artist is valued in life, only in death. <laughs> okay,
0: that was cheating. <laughs> Yeah, as Tristan said, right, the the series started with a blank canvas, tohu va bohu, everything in in the world was this, and it doesn't just magically turn into something beautiful unless you have a creator, and that's what we have, a creator God who who took a blank canvas and made something gorgeous on top of it, but as he mentioned before, careful now. I know we told you we've never done this before. That's right, exactly, this is all a giant experiment. What happened, though, is that the beautiful canvas was wrecked. And so we, we took my mediocre painting, I'll give you that, and we, we wrecked it. In fact, my daughter wrecked it. Thank you, Bailey, so much for doing that. And I found it kind of funny how people last week thought that maybe I had some sort of plastic covering on this. That maybe they thought there was just like a sheet protecting it, or I had some saran wrap, and I was just going to be like, and whip it off, and there it was fixed. But that's not how sin works, is it? Sin goes much deeper, and it, it's not just on the surface. I mean, this, this is truly wrecked, and so there's no magic eraser that will take it off. The canvas has been ruined, and it just kind of is what it is now, and that kind of leads us into our, our next word here in the series. I want Tristan to talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I can, I
1: can attest to that. He actually ruined it because I think for three days you cried Four. in your office. Four days, yes. Well, regardless of the days, it was awkward for everybody in the <laughs> office. But to your point, Thomas, in the case of Adam and Eve in the garden, the, whenever they ate the fruit, the reason that God was mad wasn't because it was God's leftover fruit that he had wrapped in tinfoil and put in the fridge for him to save for later, and then they went and ate it. Although, if it was, I get it, because whenever my three-year-old does that, I want to curse him too sometimes. So no, my leftover food is like my sacred food. That's, <laughs> that's mine and no one else's. But I think in this situation, it goes a little bit deeper. See, in disobeying God, they believed the lie that they knew better than God and that they were better off without God. Mm. And from that moment on, things began to fall apart. And that sin that originated with Adam and Eve has rippled throughout generations that have come after them. See, that decision of Adam and Eve to sin, it led and culminated to this declaration that the Lord makes only three chapters later in Genesis 6. Verse 5 reads like this. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now think about that for a moment. From paradise and Eden to perpetual evil and sin on the earth in only three chapters. See, this one event didn't just get Adam and Eve evicted from Eden, but it led to the enslavement of all of humanity to the curse of sin. Now that's what I call from bad to worse. Mm -hmm. I feel a little bit better about my DIY lighting (laughs) fail now. And although many have tried to break free from this bondage of sin on their own, they have failed miserably. And Thomas is going to explain why that's true.
0: Yeah, I mean this word is so interesting, right? It's difficult for us to admit to this because we live in a you're the captain of your own ship. You can do whatever you want. If you can dream it, you can become it kind of society. But there's a very difficult truth, a very difficult pill that we have to swallow. And it's this, that, that sin isn't just something you and I do. Sin is something you and I are enslaved to. Let me say that one more time. Sin is not just something that you and I do on occasion, on our bad days. Sin is something that we are enslaved to every moment on every day. It's not just a problem in life. It's literally a power that is ruining our life. Listen to how one apostle put it. Romans 7, beginning in verse 14. We know that the law is spiritual. What God has said is spiritual. But I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I can't carry it out. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind, making me a prisoner of the law of sin that is at work within me. This is pretty intense and extreme language, is it not? I'm a slave to sin. I'm a prisoner of sin. He says that sin is this invisible force that is coercing him, kind of forcing him to do things that he wouldn't otherwise do. He's going against his own will, his own desires, you ever had somebody kind of grab your arm and twist it right behind your back, kind of hold it up like this, like, ah, okay, enough, enough. That's what sin is doing to each and every one of us. It's grabbed a hold of us, and now it's saying, I want you to do this, and you're going to do it. I want you to do this, and you're going to do it. You don't have any say, any control anymore, because sin has grabbed a hold of our hearts. Paul's struggle is our struggle, is it not? I remember teaching on this particular text years ago. I was a young campus minister. I was teaching at the University of Arizona at this little conference, and I was reading this verse, and I just butchered it. Like, I don't want to do the things that I do, and I do, and I do, and I, what, I, what am I doing? And this I do, and I, what? It's such a confusing passage. But because it's a very confusing, I should say, complex truth behind the passage. We do things we, we know we shouldn't do. And as if we, don't, we can't control ourselves as we do them. Like We know, we know we shouldn't give that woman or that guy a second look or a third glance or just keep staring as they walk past. But man, those jeans look good. Right? We know, we know we shouldn't speed up and tailgate that person that cut us off on Roadrunner yesterday afternoon. Sounds kind of specific. Very specific, thank you. They just deserve it though, right? They need to learn a lesson. They're going to get somebody hurt. We know, we know that we shouldn't click on that picture or, or watch that flick. But I'm bored, man. I'm tired. I deserve a little downtime. Like, we know we shouldn't take a peek at that person's test next to us. But, man, i got to get an A on this test. Like, we know we shouldn't do these things. We know we shouldn't go into debt to buy stuff that we can't afford and that we don't really need. We know we shouldn't be worried about things or anxious or stressed out about stuff. But we do it anyway. It's because sin has you. You cannot stop from doing those things. This is what Jesus said in John chapter 8. Listen to this. Very truly I tell you, everyone who sins, and we all raise our hands, is a slave to sin. A slave to sin. Sin isn't just messing with you. Okay? It, is mas- it has mastery over you. Sin isn't just this thing that we struggle with. It's something that we are enslaved to. We know what is right, and we choose to do what is wrong. We know where this path leads, and we go down it anyway. We know what the consequences of decisions are going to be, but we still make the decision. We are entrenched in this. We can't get out of this. We can't get away from this. And this is our third word, captivity. 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 That's the next word in our series. This past week, I spent some time thinking about how much of the biblical narrative, how much of this book revolves around stories of of being a prisoner or being a slave or being in captivity of some kind. I mean, it's countless. I, I would argue a vast majority of this book is about just that. I mean, think about that. There's the 400 years that God's people had in Egypt before the great exodus, There's the times that the prophets are talking about the captivity they're in from Babylon or Syria. There's the New Testament guys who are either being thrown in prison or miraculously escaping from prison. Like Everybody's a slave. Everybody's a prisoner in the Bible. Why is that? Oh, Maybe it's pointing to a very deep spiritual truth that is also true for each of us. That we are slaves to sin. That we are in bondage and captivity. We can't break free from this stuff. What was true in their story is also true in our story. You see, captivity wasn't just something that God's people experienced back in the day. It's something that we experience almost every single day. Imprisonment isn't just something that first century followers of Jesus experienced. Imprisonment is what we experience. Okay, it's not metal bars, and there's not some Egyptian slave master ruling over me. I get that. But we're enslaved, are we not? My arm is behind my back, and I can't stop doing these things. Why? Why? Why is, why, why is this happening to me? Now here's, I think, where a lot of us are with this. We're wrestling with that. We're feeling the bondage. I'm going to have him hold this. This is actually why I invited him up today, just to make him feel good. I gave him some speaking parts, but I just needed him to hold that. So we think one of two things is true now. So this, 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 this blank canvas that was made into something beautiful by the Creator, ruined and wrecked by our sin. Here's what we think about this now. Ah, it's, it's no big deal. It, it's modern art. It looks kind of good, right? You remember the Monty Python line? Flesh wound, flesh wound, right? No big deal. So we think this is no big deal. Or here actually is what I think a vast majority of us think. We know this to be true. We know it's wrecked. We know that sin is wreaking havoc in our life, in our spirit, in our home, in our marriage, in our finances. And so we're like, oh, I'm just going to clean that up a little bit, man. I'm just going to kind of work that up. Sorry, hope it didn't get you in your eyes there. Yeah, it's okay. I'm just going to work a little harder and I'm just going to scrub a little bit more because this is not working. This is supposed to be coming off. If I just do a lot of good things, if I go serve on the weekends or maybe even like on a holiday, if I give more money to the poor, ah, if, if I follow the Ten Commandments more, more strictly, if I live out the four spiritual laws, if I fi- you know, follow the seven golden rules, like surely something I can do would fix this. But you see what's happening there? Nothing's fixing it. Nothing at all. This is the strongest grade cleaner I could find at the preschool, and you know that's some serious stuff, right? (laughs) Nothing's working because you're a slave to it. You can't get out of it on your own. You're in bondage, in captivity. And so I laugh. We talk about, you know, uh, self-help. Self-help? Prisoners don't need self-help. A slave doesn't need self-help. They need to be set free. They need someone to rescue them, right? To redeem them. And Tristan's got some good news for us this morning. Our our next word, I think, hits on that.
1: I mean, that's exactly what, uh, what God promised to do, right? To set us free from the shackles of our sin and to breathe life into us once again, just like he did at the beginning of creation. See, brought about by our own doing, by our own sin, creation took on the curse. But because of God's great love for us, he provided a way out of our captivity by giving us a new covenant. And covenant is our fourth word of the series that we'll talk about. Covenant is a strange kind of Christianese word, but it's it's one of, if not the most important words in all the Bible. Mm -hmm. Everything changes and hinges upon this word covenant. At its most basic level, a covenant is an agreement between God and his people. An agreement where both parties make promises to one another, and the Old Testament is full of them. God made a promise and a covenant to Noah that he will never flood the earth again. God made a promise to Abraham that he will bless his family so they will in turn bless every other family. He made a promise to Moses that he will protect his people and give them a life in a land of their own. He made a promise to David that he will establish his kingdom forever and then what's interesting is in each of those situations things were quickly going from bad to worse and then God comes down to humanity he initiates a conversation and a relationship and he says I'm not done with this yet I'm not through with what's going on here I want this I want to redeem it and save it and reclaim it for mine and he said he would pay whatever price he had to to have it see this promise is made to Adam and Eve it's made to to Noah Abraham Moses David and the promise is made to you and me. This promise of a new covenant relationship between God and humanity is found all throughout Scripture, but is perhaps most famously portrayed in Jeremiah, chapter 31, and verse 33. The Lord lays out what this new covenant is. He says, this is the new covenant. I'm going to tell you black and white. I will make with the people of Israel after those days this new covenant. I will put my instructions deep within them. I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. I will be their God. They will be my people. They will not need to teach their neighbors, nor will they need to teach their relatives, saying, you should know the Lord for everyone, from the least to the greatest, will know me already, says the Lord. And I will forgive their wickedness, and I will never again remember their sins. I will forgive your wickedness, and I'll never remember your sins. Now, as Thomas talked about earlier, Romans says we've all fallen short. Like not one of us is righteous here in the eyes of God on our own. We've all made choices that have corroded the good things in our life. Our actions have led us astray. And if we're honest with ourselves, when we take a step back and we look at the entirety of our life, we often ask ourselves, who would want this painting? Who wants me? I'm a mess. Mm-hmm. And the lie that the enemy tells us is no one, Nobody. Especially not a holy God. But did you hear what he just said in Jeremiah? Did you hear what God has just agreed to? He couldn't idly sit by and watch his creation crumble under the weight of their own captivity. Mm-hmm. And so he set out to reclaim and redeem and restore what was his. You think God doesn't care about or want you? He wanted you so much that instead of the condemnation that you deserved, he instead gave you a new covenant and a hope. For life. A new covenant with anyone and everyone who would ever agree or believe and belong to him. And the promise is that he's going to undo everything that's been done. In other words, he's going to reverse the curse. He's going to free the slaves and open the cell doors of the oppressed. He's going to right our wrongs and bring the wanderers home. He's going to breathe new life into the dead. They will be his people and he will be their God. No longer will he remember our sin or our wickedness. This new covenant is not a mere possibility or something that God proposes. It's his promise to us of new life and new creation. And understand this, the certainty of this promise lies not in our ability to hold up our end of the deal. If it did, that wouldn't be a covenant. That would be a contract. A contract means I will do this as long as you do this. And if you don't, then I won't. See, often we view our relationship with God as contractual, not covenantal. Sure, yeah, God God will keep his promise to me and he'll forgive me, but only if I never do it again, right? Only if I'm on my best behavior from this point on. Mm. Here's the thing about God's covenant. No matter how good you are, you can't earn or deserve this on your own. And no matter how bad you are, you can't undo or nullify what God has already spoken to be done.
0: Mm.
1: And as Thomas illustrated earlier, whenever we try and take matters into our own hands, fix it ourselves, earn it ourselves, we only end up making a mess of things. The only thing then we have power to do is to accept and receive this gift of the new covenant of God, which brings us new life, or reject it. Those are the two options that lay before us. And friends, the streets of heaven will be filled with former captives who having received this free gift of a new covenant promise now find themselves redeemed, forgiven, and free. Slaves to sin have now become saints. The rebellious have become royalty. And the captives find new hope in a new covenant. Mm. See, just as God gave Noah the rainbow as a seal for his covenant with him, God has sealed his covenant to us with the giving of his own life and the shedding of his own blood. And this was planned way before Jesus ever stepped foot on this earth. And Thomas is going to explain a little bit more about that right now.
0: Yeah, before I get to Genesis 15, that's where we're going to close this morning. I just want to hit on a little bit of what Tristan just said, the the profound nature of this idea between a covenant and a contract. See, a lot of us think that our relationship with God is contractual, that God has offered to give us some things in exchange or as long as we do certain things ourselves. A contract is something that you get into with, with your cell phone carrier. Right, So I signed a contract with these guys, and, and the agreement is this. I will pay you $30 a month for unlimited, right, along with $178 extra for surcharges and taxes and fees. Anybody else have that problem? Mm-hmm. Right, So I pay my end of the deal, and what do I get in exchange? I get data, I get messaging, I get phone service, I get the smartphone. It's a contract. But let's say one of the two parties backs off on their contract, doesn't come through on their end of the deal. Let's say I stop paying my bill. What happens? There goes the contract. They cut my services off. Let's say I'm not getting the services that have been provided for me or promised to me in the contract. What happens? Well, I argue against it, right? I can say I'm not going to pay you. I want to get refunds. It's tit for tat. It's you do this and I do that. And if you don't do this, then I don't have to do that. And so many of us, because that's how our world works, thinks that's how it is with God. He has given us the Ten Commandments. He's given us the new law in Jesus. He's given us an example to follow in the Christ. And we're not really holding up our end of the deal. So there's no way God would ever hold up his side of the deal. He has promised newness. He's promised to remake this and to redeem this. He's promised to take your life, however messy it might be, and to make it beautiful. He's made that promise, but you haven't paid your bill, have you? Oh, shoot. Well, it was going to be really good for you. But service has been canceled now. Is that how it is? No, no, it's not how it is at all. Genesis 15. If you have a Bible, I want you to open it there. If not, follow along, and I want you to think about this or read it throughout the course this week. It's, it's a really strange story. In Genesis 15, God makes this covenant, the thing that Tristan was talking about, this promise to the umpteenth degree. Okay, And, and Abram, the man who's receiving it, doesn't really believe him. He's like, I'm not sure that this is real, that it, it's almost too good to be true. And so Abram has the audacity to ask God to prove it. Would you prove that you're going to come through on your side of this agreement? So God says, okay, sure, I'll prove it. So he has him gather up several different animals. He then asks Abram to cut the animals in half, to sacrifice them, and lay them on opposite sides of this walking path. So I did this for the teens a couple of years ago, and I had some little stuffed animals, and I cut their heads off. It was kind of awkward, and I think it traumatized the children forever, so they're in counseling, and I'm never going to do that again. <laughs> all right, But kind of imagine the scene. We've taken some animals, and they are now laying on both sides of this middle aisle. And the blood from the sacrifice is now running down the path. This is called, very literally, the blood path. And this sounds super awkward and super gross, and I'm sure that it was, but this was very common back in these days, and here's why. Here's the significance of this. You would sacrifice the animals, lay their bodies along the path, and then you would literally walk down the path through the blood. And what you are saying to in this moment is this, I am so serious about my commitment to you. I'm so serious about these promises that if I don't come through on my end of the deal, if I don't do exactly what I said I was going to do, you can do to me as we have done to these animals. You can take my life and spill my blood if I don't come through for you. And then both parties would walk down the blood path. It's basically like signing in blood. You've ever heard that statement before? It's kind of what's happening in this moment. They are signing their life away in blood, saying, I'm so committed to this promise that you can take my life if I don't come through. All right, so now back to Genesis 15. God comes down in the form of this torch and this pot that's smoking. And he walks down the blood path. He goes down the path. The Lord God Almighty goes down the path himself. And guess where Abram is this entire time? He has fallen asleep over in the corner. Typical dude, right? I mean, come on, man. Like, this is a huge moment. Wake up. Well, he does. He comes to as soon as God is kind of ending his walk through the path. But then I don't want you to miss this. This is maybe the most important part of the story. Nowhere do we read that Abram then has to walk down the path himself. Don't miss that, because that's probably the key point in this story. God never requires Abram to say that he's committed, to say that he's all in. He never asks Abram to swear by his life, Or to promise that he would lay down his life. Why? Because here's the truth you have to come away with this morning. God's promises are not dependent upon our faithfulness. And they are not invalidated by our failure. That's why these two words go together. Because captivity is all that we know. And we think that that's all that God really knows. No. God's got a trump card for your captivity. And it's his covenant. And no matter how deep you are entrenched in the mess, God will still save it because His promises are not dependent on our faithfulness and they're not invalidated by our failures. I just want you to let that sink in for a minute. God looks at Abram, He looks at me, He looks at all of us, and He says the unthinkable. He says, I'll take it. This mess right here, we should probably just throw it in the dumpster outside. It's ugly, it's awkward, now it smells like lemon fresh, right? It's weird. This is a mess. We should just throw it away. We should just destroy it. But God comes down and he says, I want it. I'll take it and I'll pay the highest price for it. And I am so committed to this. I'm so committed to remaking this. I'm so committed to renewing this. I'm so committed to redeeming this that I will lay down my life if I don't come through for you. I'll go one step further, the Lord says. I'll lay down my life when you don't come through. That's what is happening in Genesis 15. Genesis 15 is a foreshadowing of the cross. Genesis 15 is God saying, I will come through even if you don't, and I will come through knowing that you won't. Isn't that mind-boggling? Both parties should walk down the blood path, and if Abram doesn't do what he said, then the contract is null and void. That's not how it works with the covenant. You see, we talk about the covenant of marriage. That's the wrong phrase to use. A covenant is between a a greater party and a lesser party. It's not between two equals. That's a contract. A covenant is between someone who really shouldn't be in business with you way down here, but agrees to it and agrees to hold their end of the bargain no matter what you do, no matter how bad you mess it up, no matter how ugly it gets. That is the covenant of God. And so, Genesis 15, he walks down this bloody path alone. To show that he's all in. And then thousands and thousands of years later, this same God would walk down another bloody path, wouldn't he? All alone. To show how serious he is. To show how committed he is. To show that he'll come through, even if you don't, and even when you won't. Don't we serve an amazing God? That he would covenant himself to us knowing that we would break it, knowing that we wouldn't come through, knowing that we would continue to be captives and slaves and make a mess of his good thing, and he would say, it's okay. I'm still going to come through for you. I still got you. I'm still going to redeem this. God is so devoted to fixing our mess, so dedicated to redeeming it, so committed to saving it, that he not only gave us his word, his promise, his covenant, he gave us his son. But now we're getting ahead of ourselves. That's next week's word. you got to come back for that one. I'm going to ask my friend here to pray us out on this. Yeah, it's so good.
1: Father, we love you. We thank you so much for your love, God. We thank you for your commitment to us, God. We thank you for the fact that you persistently pursued a people who only rejected you. Had you could have just wiped the dust off your hands, God, and let us go the, the way that we wanted But you weren't content to allow your creation to just fall victim to their own sin. As you made a way out, the blood of your son, Jesus, and we thank you for that, God. And we often our life just seems like it just goes from bad to worse. Mm. So in those moments, would you just remind us again through your Holy Spirit that, that we have life, that there is hope. That this isn't the end chapter of it all, God. That while we already have life and victory through the price that Jesus paid on the cross, God, you will come back again to wipe every tear from our eyes. Death, pain, and sin and suffering will be no more. So Father, I just ask that you just bless and pour your favor over each individual in this room, their marriages, their families, God. Lord, if they are just in a state, in a season of wandering and running from you, God, would you beckon them back? Would you allow them the courage to take risk, to find their way back to the foot of the cross, Lord, where you'll receive them with open arms? Lord, and for those that are just humbly and obediently walking with you, would you just affirm them in where, where they are and where you've called them to be? God, we thank you for your new covenant that you've given us. We thank you for the fact that you not only took our place, but you walked the path that was destined for us. Mm -hmm. The one who knew no sin became sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. Lord Jesus, we thank you for everything you've done, everything you're doing, and everything you will do for us in the future. In your mighty, precious, holy name we pray.
0: Amen. Amen. We've already kind of hinted at it. Next week, the word is Christ, because Christ is truly how the captives are set free. So, come back next week as we just celebrate him. But this morning, we're going to do a little bit of that as we come to the table. This is a moment known as communion. And we do it every week here at University Church. Just a moment for us to celebrate and reflect and remember Jesus and what he did for us to set us free. And so, we come, there's a little piece of bread representing his body broken for us and a little cup of juice representing his blood shed for us. You don't have to confess before you come, you don't have to have your act all cleaned up before you come. You can just come to the table. Come to the table, the Lord says. Come and find hope and freedom. Come and find rest for your weary soul. Come and find that which you haven't been able to find on your own. Come to Jesus this morning.